but we've been looking at the book of Acts, and, and therefore we've been looking at the trajectory of life in the early church, the, the earliest version of the church. And very vividly, one of the things that comes into focus in the chapter we're looking at today is just how diverse and pluralistic was the world in which the early church was born. And even though it was born in this vast and diverse, religiously and culturally pluralistic world, from the very beginning, Christianity made some of the most staggering universal claims about truth. And not surprisingly, and you see it in the passage that Angie just read for us so beautifully, those claims get the disciples in hot water. In fact, it lands the apostles in jail. There is real opposition in the ancient world, in a pluralistic world, to anyone who stands up and says, there is truth. And this is truth that should not be rejected. Now, here's why that's relevant. We're also living in a vastly diverse, pluralistic society. And increasingly, Christians are told in our society, particularly in the West, that, that you need to get with the times, that you need to be culturally sensitive. It's a, it's a vast, pluralistic world now. You can't go around making claims. You can't repeat things like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through me. You can't, you can't say, I mean, you can say it within the church, but you can't say it outside of the church. At York Minster, I was preaching on the, uh, on the five solas, the, the central proclamations of, of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary, as you know, this year of the Reformation. And when we were preaching on, on that foundational truth, sola Christa, solus Christus, in Christ alone, which you just sang, one very kindly old Jesuit man at the door said, I haven't heard a message like that in about 25 years. Surely you believe that that's a statement that's true only for Christians. But the answer to that is no. What if what God was doing in Christ had the entire world in its crosshairs? But we're told that, that it's just not, it's not good to talk that way anymore. It's it's not wise, it's not appropriate, it's not sensitive. So what I want to do is, is to look at the passage here in Acts chapter 4, to learn what we can from the earliest church, to deal with the passage under three headings, and you have them in your notes. The first, the problem with truth claims. Because the world would say, our world, that, that there are real problems with standing out there in the public square and saying, I found the truth. The second section has to do with, and it's kind of a, a, a repetitious language, but you'll understand it, the problem with the problem with truth claims. And then the third section will try and weave together the two, the solution to the problem. But let's notice first, right off the bat, what it is that's going on here in chapter four among the Jewish leaders themselves. You see them responding to a sermon that was actually preached in chapter three. And you look at that with with Pastor Sheldon last week. If you go back through chapter 3, glancing through in your notes, you're going to see that Peter said a number of things. One of them is that Jesus has ascended into heaven, and yet he's coming back. And when he comes back, everything is going to be restored. That's chapter 3, verse 21. Everything is going to be made new. No more suffering, no death, no sorrows. Peter also says in, in verse 25, 
that through Jesus, the whole world is going to be blessed. And so when we get to the chapter that we're looking at today, in chapter 4, in verse 12, that, that remarkable, that, that controversial statement, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. Really, that's just a summary, a reflection of what he had already been preaching. That what God was doing in Jesus was meant to bless the whole world. Now, here's the reason why it was so appalling to the leaders back then. Many of them also believed a Messiah was coming. Their hope was in a Messiah. But they hoped for a man who would be a political and a military leader who would help them throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. Specifically, they wanted a private Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would be at work on behalf of the Jewish people and the Jewish people only. Their version of Messiah had Israel in the middle. But it didn't have anything around the outside. So the disciples are thrown into jail for claiming that the message of Jesus isn't meant just for Jews. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, it's universal. People were expecting a Savior just for their small little tribe. And, and the apostles began to teach that, no, what God has in mind is something far more vast. As you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that Christianity runs afoul, not just of Jewish leaders, but of Roman power. A riot breaks out. Acts chapter 19, the city of Ephesus. When the citizens of the city realize that this gospel that is, is starting to really establish a beachhead, a foothold, and a presence in that culture, this gospel is, is disrupting and undermining the cult and the worship of all the other Roman gods, particularly the goddess Diana, who was so central to the city of Ephesus. The Roman world at the time had an official policy that was pluralistic. It went something like this. You can worship whatever God you choose. Everyone has their own gods. Every city, every town, every family had their own God. That's fine. Worship your God. So long as you also do this. Worship the emperor. Of every Roman citizen, it was required that you say this. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. You can worship your God so long as you also proclaim that Caesar is God. Now, what's disingenuous about saying that is when you say, I believe in this God and that God and also in Caesar, what you're really saying is that I don't believe that any God has a claim to exclusivity, to supremacy, to superiority. I don't believe that there is one God, one God creator, sustainer of the universe. I believe it's all in flux. And, and Christians couldn't do that. They couldn't say, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord. They could only say, Christos, Christ is Lord. And that brought them into tremendous conflict with the Roman Empire. Let's come forward to today. Because today, again, the world is very pluralistic, more so than it's ever been. And when Christians say that that somehow the message of the gospel, Christianity, is meant not just for Christians, but for the whole world. That Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. That's seen, at least in Western societies, as incredibly narrow-minded, as exclusivist, as, as bigoted, as, as even dangerous. The universal claims that the gospel makes get us in trouble with the powers that be, as much now as they did back then. And so many folks will say, and, 
And maybe colleagues, neighbors, friends of yours, family members would say, hey, Christians, you know, the past was one thing, but, but we live in a new day. Your neighbors are Hindu. They're Muslim. They're secular people. They're atheists. You have to get with the times. You can't say anymore that somehow your truth is the truth. You need to adapt. People are, are going to believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus. But you can't offend them by saying that, that some religious beliefs are, are more valid than other religious beliefs. You have to just let it all wash nicely together, and then there can be peace. Well, is that right? I mean, is, is that really the road ahead for religion, for, for Christian faith? See, off the bat, th- there's one huge problem with that way of thinking. Christianity was born into a world that was vast and diverse and pluralistic. It, it, it was born in a time when the claims that it made in individual lives were just as controversial as they are now. And yet, even though they were as dangerous and controversial back then as they are today, a lot of people believe them anyway. Christianity grew explosively. And I want to ask the question, why? That's where we're going to go next. Here's the problem with the problem of truth claims. Follow me on that? Here's the problem with the problem with truth claims. The powers that be have a problem with truth claims. Let me show you the problem with the problem. First, people say it's arrogant to make these exclusive claims about religion. Here we are in in verse 12. Very, very, very out there. When Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to us by which we may be saved. People will say, listen, you can't do that anymore. You can believe in Jesus, that's fine. But you can't say he's the only way. You can't say he's the best way, the definitive way to God. You can't say that somehow he's better than other religious teachers or great thinkers like like Plato or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or Gandhi. You can believe in Jesus. You just can't believe anymore that he's different or better than any of the other great religious founders or teachers. And I want to respond, wait, wait. I mean, you say it's okay for for me to believe in Jesus. Do you mean the Jesus who said before Abraham, I already existed? You say, it's okay for me to believe in Jesus. Do you mean that Jesus said, I'm going to heaven, yet when I come back, I'm going to obliterate evil and death and suffering in the whole world? Do you mean that Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that the Jesus that you mean? Because that's the only Jesus we have in history. And and here's what, what I think it's important to acknowledge. When it comes to Jesus, you can soften him. You can ignore him. You can neuter the parts of his message that are unpalatable. But let's not pretend that there was some other Jesus in history that lived and died and rose and inspired his followers. Some wishy-washy, accommodating, milk-toast version of the Savior. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Now listen, that may sound arrogant. But the fact is, Jesus said it about himself. No other religious founder has ever claimed such a thing. And I want you to track with me on this. No other religious leader leader has ever claimed to work at that level. Let's not pretend that you can believe in Jesus on the same level that people might believe in other leaders or teachers. They may all have 
value and merit, but they're not the same. Here's an example. Toyohiku Kagawa, a great Japanese Christian leader, tells the story of his conversion. This is what he said. I'm grateful to Shinto. I'm grateful for Buddhism, for Confucianism. I owe so much to these faiths. But they could not meet me at the moment of my heart's deepest needs. I was a pilgrim on a journey, he said, on a long road that had no turning. And I was weary and I was footsore. And I wandered through this dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is my blood poured out for many for the remission of sin? You hear that? I learned a lot from Buddhism, but Buddha never said, this is my life poured out heal you, to cleanse you, to put you right with God. Buddha never said anything like that. Confucius never said anything like that. Muhammad never said anything like that. Those other leaders never made claims like this. They could say, follow my teaching, do this, here's a way to God, but no one else was working at this level. No one met me at this level, is what Kagawa was saying. Now listen, maybe Jesus was right, maybe he was wrong. And that's the thing that, that you're going to wrestle with and me. But think about this. Either he's not the son of God, and in which case he's inferior to all those other teachers, because at least they had the common sense and the wisdom and the humility not to make such a, a megalomaniacal claim. Or he is the son of God, and that makes him unique among all the other religious leaders and teachers. God in flesh. To say that he's in some way superior is an implication. It, it's, not, it, it's not an arrogation. Arrogation means it, it, it's, it, it's, it's not an inappropriate extension. It's just the inevitable implication of believing in him because of who he was, what he did, and what he says. This one, from the beginning of time, Kagawa is absolutely right. It was unlike anyone else who said, this is my blood poured out for many to deal with sin. If it's true, then he's the way. If it's not true, then he is no way at all. But it's nonsense to say that you can believe in Jesus as long as you believe that he's the same as everyone else. Here's another problem with the problem with truth claims. People will say it's, it's not just arrogant, it's exclusive. Listen, we've got a big world out there. And we have access to it through modern transportation and telecommunications, electronics. We have access to it in ways that are unparalleled. There's a lot of people, different faiths, no faith, secular people, atheists, agnostics, whatever. The only way we can live together, the only way that we can have a peaceful, pluralistic society is by avoiding any mention that some faiths might have more relevance, more reality, more truth than other faiths. The only way to be really inclusive is to say that they're all equally valid. It's the assumption that I think 99% of writers in most papers or newspapers or magazines and places like the GTA will make. It's the assumption of the cultural elite, of the media elite. And it goes like this. Religion, it can be privately and subjectively helpful in your own life. 
the religion you adhere to, whatever it is that you believe, it can be helpful, it can be comforting, but it stays with you in your home, in your bedroom, when you're on your knees. Objectively, though, you cannot talk about and you cannot think about God and spiritual reality in any way that escapes the private confines of your own life or your own home. All religions are essentially valid. You have to say that. We need to say that. Everybody says that. You have to say it if you're going to have peace, and that way nobody's left out. Let me show you why that's not only wrong, but why it's hypocritical, why it's disingenuous, why it's insincere, not just logically, but also culturally. First, logically, though, Job, Mr. Philosophy, John, hear me out on this and, and then correct me when we're done. But really, if you suggest that, there really only are two possibilities, as I can see them, two premises. It might be true that all religions are equally valid if there is no God. Because that would mean that, that everyone's version of faith is just sort of a projection of their own imagination, their own wishful thinking, their own yearnings for how they want the world to be. If that's the case, then yeah, maybe all religions can be equally valid. Or, if there is a God who is just so impersonal, this vast, impersonal, unknowable force that doesn't care about what human beings do or think or believe, is not at all invested in the world. But to say that all religions are fine and equally valid, even though they have contradictory claims, would only be true if there's no God or if there's no God connected with the world whatsoever. And if that's your view, and you come to a follower of Jesus and say, you shouldn't believe that your faith is somehow more true than any other faith. You should believe that all religions are ways to God, all religions are equally valid, all religions are equally helpful. Then what you're actually saying is that I have a particular understanding of spiritual reality. I have a particular understanding of what God is like, or even whether he exists. And you need to adapt to it. You must adopt my view and abandon your view. Now, how inclusive is that really? What you're really saying is, I have a take on God and on spiritual realities. You need to adopt my view and abandon yours. It's just another way of saying I'm right and you're wrong. My take on spiritual reality is right. Your take is wrong. But it's exactly what we're told we need to do. The only difference maybe between what evangelical Christians are trying to do and what their opponents are doing is, is their opponents are less likely to admit that they're doing it. Maybe that's what makes it hypocritical. Now listen, if it's narrow and it's wrong to say that there's only one true religion, wouldn't it also have to be narrow and wrong to say that there's only one true way to think about religion? Isn't that just as exclusive? Furthermore, I mean, it's just, it's inconsistent to say this. It's culturally narrow to say to Christians that no one should say that they have the truth, that they have the one true religion. You know why it's culturally narrow? The whole idea that religion is a subjective thing, that it's fine in the private intimacies of your own life or your own home, but you shouldn't talk about, there, uh, talk about it out there in the public. It's based on, on what some people call the fact-value distinction. The fact 
value distinction is simply this, that science gives us the facts, the things that we can talk about in public. But values, beliefs, morality, they're private. It's all subjective. Now, where did that come from? The fact-value distinction started in the Enlightenment. Those of you who want to climb back into your history textbooks, Enlightenment was in Europe in the 18th century. Most of the world actually were never enlightened by it, and most of the world still doesn't believe it. Most of the world doesn't believe that facts are the only objective truth and that values are all subjective. Do you know who does believe it? White people. <laughs> really, white Western people. Because it came from white Western people. This is the European Enlightenment. So when people say the world is getting more secular, more pluralistic, Christians need to get with the program, I want you to realize this. It's mainly white Western people that are saying that. And they're shrinking in number, in percentage. They're actually shrinking. Most of the world, evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity, Islam, all sorts of orthodox religion is growing in leaps and bounds. They're growing in our own cities, growing throughout North America and Europe. When you say to the most multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in the history of the human race, which is Pentecostalism, by the way. I'm not Pentecostal, but I want to give credit where credit is due. When, when you say to that movement, hey, you need to get with the program, you can't believe, you can't say anymore, he is the way, the truth, the life. Your morals, your views are primitive. You're on the wrong side of history. And history is always right. I think that's an, as, as an egregious an act of cultural imperialism as saying we white European types are right and the rest of you are wrong. Not only is it logically inconsistent and hypocritical, it's incredibly ethnocentric. To say no one can make those kind of claims, isn't that a universal claim? To say no one should be able to decide that they have the truth, isn't that also an absolute statement? Everyone is making claims whether they think it or not. So where does that leave us? If everyone is making these claims, how can we live together in peace? How do we have a diverse society, which we do have, with people who differ in what it is that they believe, who live together and respect each other and work together and they're civil and they believe in justice and peace? So we come to the final section, the solution to the problem. And the hint is right here. Let me just read to you a little bit again from the text and give you the issue and then come back to it. Peter says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a crippled man, he'd healed a man. And if we're asked how he was healed, then I want you to know this. You and, and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected. And now he has become the cornerstone. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished. And they took note. These are the men who had been with Jesus. First, let me give you just a little bit more of the problem. The view that there is no truth, that 
the truth is all personal and it's all culturally limited and relative, that everybody themselves gets to decide what's right and wrong and true for them. Not only is it kind of duplicitous, but it makes you helpless in the face of injustice. If, if all religions have equal claims to truth, then how do you respond to some of the horrific things being done in the name of religion in the world? You can never say that this government or that company or that person is doing something unjust. You can't be overwhelmed by how cruelly women and children are treated in some societies, by how viciously some governments are torturing their own citizens, by how oppressively some regimes are responding to the cry for freedom. Because in each case, those cultures are guided by some prevailing morality, however destructive it may be. I get my moral feelings from my culture. But if there's no God, there may be moral feelings, but there is no moral obligation. Here's the difference. Moral feelings might be, I think this is right, I think this is wrong. Moral obligation is, you need to stop doing what you're doing, even if you feel like it's right. Because it is wrong. If there is no God, there is no standard outside of us through which we decide whose moral feelings are right and whose are wrong. That makes sense? So what are we going to do? Because society doesn't want to go back to this place of moral absolutes. And I understand why, because too often those were used to oppress. But it doesn't want to move forward. And it can't move forward without some kind of moral imperatives. What are we going to do? We're kind of stuck. In this cultural moment, we're kind of stuck. And people are saying, listen, we we need to have shared values. You hear that more and more in Canada? We need to establish what it is we stand for as a country. What are our values? We need to have some sense of, of moral certainty. Without it, we're not going to be able to deal with injustice. But we need moral absolutes that are not oppressive. We need values that don't turn believers into oppressors. In the past, People who believed in moral absolutes used them to oppress people, to gain and to hold power. We need something that turns believers not just to agents of justice, but to people of service. People who don't look down on other people, who don't feel superior, who don't trash other people, who don't oppress people, who don't coerce. We need people who serve in love. Hmm. I have a candidate. I mean, do you? Isn't the gospel exactly exactly what the culture doctor ordered? Why? Look again at verse 11. Jesus saves us how? Through rejection. He's the stone who was rejected. He came to the builders, the leaders, and they rejected him. And yet God made him the cornerstone of this great new world to come. He saved us not by coming and, and claiming power. He didn't arrive as a general mounted on an armored steed, rallying an army. He saved through service, through rejection, through homelessness, through suffering, through loving. Not through accruing power. He came and he gave up power. He went to the cross. He gave up his life. So somehow the reality of God's character, of his, of his nature, of his love could flow into our lives. He saves through grace, through love, through service. And the only way to become really a Christ-following person, 
a Christian is to give up all pretensions of superiority. That you're more accomplished, that you're more moral than other people. Salvation only comes fully into the lives of people who can admit that they're in need of grace. My life is just riddled with problems. And they're of my own design. Sin is the way the Bible talks about it. That's the way it comes out in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these are unschooled, ordinary men. They're astonished. And they took special note that these men have been with Jesus, that somehow the imprint of Jesus was on their lives. And here's what was so astonishing. Outside of the gospel, outside of that imprint, everyone's identity is based on relative status. In a traditional society, your role is kind of assigned. You feel good about yourself because you're a good father, a good husband, a good provider, a good wife, a good son, good daughter, whatever it is. You get your identity, your self-esteem through accomplishment by being smarter or better looking or more accomplished or more talented than other people. But it's always relative, which means there are always some people you feel superior to, and there are always some people that are more talented than you are. And the religious leaders are shocked when they talk to the apostles. Why? These are ordinary men. These are ordinary men without schooling. And in that society, without the pedigree, without the education, they should have been abashed in the presence of their leaders. Eyes downcast, looking to the ground. They never would have spoken aloud to them. These men have a new identity. They have a new drive, a new purpose. Not only are they unabashed in the presence of those who would have been above them in the old understanding, but they're not superior to those who might have been below them because their self-esteem isn't based anymore on accomplishment. It's based on the grace of God. You can't feel superior to anyone. You can witness to the truth. You must witness to the truth. You can have a universal and absolute truth, but it's this. It's a man who thought that his enemies were worth dying for. A man who dies literally with these words on his lips. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If it's a truth that we have, it's a non-oppressive truth. It's a truth that turns us into a people with a completely different identity. What does this world need? Does it really need people who are out there saying, hey, there's no such thing as truth anymore? No, we, we need people whose truth makes them believe that there's hope for the world and turns them into gracious, unassuming servants to the people around them. Christianity can do that. Listen, try this. We're going to wrap up now. But the next time somebody says to you, listen, it's, it's just so exclusive when you talk that way. Only through Jesus can you be saved. I believe that good people of all faiths can find God. Try answering in this way. What about bad people? Because that's me. Good people of all faiths can find God. Listen, if that's your faith, that's fine. But let's not pretend that that's any more loving or any more inclusive or any less hypocritical than what Christianity claims. At its heart, Christianity says it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what your background is, culture, race, religion. It just doesn't matter. 
you repent. You rest in Jesus and what he's done for you. The Father delights in you. He gives you a transformed identity. Listen, the gospel is an exclusive truth. At the same time, it's the most inclusive truth in the world. It's been a lot. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to take hold of these ideas. We not only need to talk about this with each other, but we know we need to be able to talk to our friends and neighbors, our colleagues in this city. Do so in a way that honors and holds up the name of Jesus. And yet to do so in a way that is winsome in their lives. A truth that's exclusive, but but a love that's deeply inclusive. And we are its agents. God, we're salt and light. We're going to work in the world for peace and justice. God, help us as we go out to be bold, but but also to be meek, that, that profound mixture of, of those who are bold in a stand for justice and yet meek and humble in our desire to serve. Not to be afraid to, to mingle with people who, who believe differently, who live differently. To come alongside them and enter their lives without feeling superior. but knowing and cherishing for ourselves and for them the cleansing and invigorating grace of Jesus Christ. Teach us how to be agents of truth in this pluralistic society, for we pray it in Jesus' name and in his name alone.